Hey folks, it's Jeremy. You're listening to Blamo. I hope you all had a lovely holiday, or are in the middle of one. Who knows what you're doing right now? But uh, folks that know me or listen to this show a lot know my just absurd love of music. I used to work in the industry, I was in a band, and like, like many, music has shaped my entire life. I even... Okay, okay, hear me for a minute. I just got one of those... <laughs> I guess stupid. But I got one of those digital-to-analog converters uh, to listen to music on. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? It's People call them DACs, and they're things that you plug into your computer so you can listen to high-res audio. Has anyone ever done that? Um, it lets you listen to, you know, like 24-bit. Like, have you heard... You know, the new Revolver album, it's, they remastered it on 24-bit. Like, basically, instead of watching a movie or something, you get some nice headphones, you put an album on, and you sit down. I love it. But before you at me or ask, high-res audio, it, uh, it, it just lets you hear more. Imagine a net that only catches one size of fish because it won't, get ever, it won't ever get bigger. But the ocean is huge, right? So higher-res audio is a much bigger net. So when you're listening to music, you hear more. Does that make sense? I don't know. I'm shooting from the hip here. Didn't expect to explain this, but here we go. On that note, my guest is the singer and songwriter Dan Wilson. Most of you know him as the frontman of the 90s band Semisonic with hits like Chemistry and the Anthem. I mean, Jesus, huge anthem closing time. Dan has also been behind stadium hits from Adele's Someone Like You to collaborations with John Legend, Taylor Swift, Chris Stapleton, and many, many more. I mean, geez, I was looking this up as I was writing his stuff and like his songwriting credits are like a murderer's row of hits. The guy is a hit factory and he just released his new EP, Dancing on the Moon. Dan and I discussed the state of the industry, songwriting versus publishing, bowling shirts from the 90s, puppet shows, K-pop, art, his journey to songwriting and words and music in six seconds. It's great talk. Let's go. How you doing? Good. Having a good morning. Yeah. I was just listening to you. Uh, th- I think this is the first pod I've ever done where literally out of nowhere, I was listening to you before. And it wasn't even your music. It was your comedy bang bang. Like <sighs> like 20, min- 20 minutes ago, half hour ago. That's a fun are show. You, uh, are, you, are you good friends with, with, with the CBB crew? Uh, I mean, I've, I've, just, I've just rolled in twice. Kind of, huh? What, is this the right place? You know, I, I, but <laughs> it's been super fun both times. I, uh, I hope we get to do more, more stuff. Yeah, it's super cool. Because I, I feel like you're, um, you're you're like a musician that is also. I mean, you're like an LA personality now. <laughs> Great, cool, <laughs> wow, <laughs> right? I mean, is that would, would you agree? I mean, uh, uh, okay, I'm not sure exactly. I love, first of all, I love that description. It's hilarious to me. It's and not slander. If you no, and if you um, if you could weed out everybody but songwriters, producers, singers, and guitarists, and then mm-hmm. that, and it'd be almost one of those like. Um, post-rapture worlds where the only people left were like studio cats and songwriters, then everyone would know who I am in LA. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because I think that's the thing where, you know, I was really excited to talk to you, not just because of your, your music career, but like also I think you're, you're a person who's embodying both sides simultaneously. And when I mean both sides is like the studio side behind the board and the songwriting side, but also on the performing side. Yeah. Um, And obviously there are other musicians that do it, but I don't know of any that have had your tenure Mm. and history, especially Mm -hmm. in writing music that is such a variety of it. You know, I mean... From Adele stuff to like closing time, right? I mean, yeah. two polar opposites. And especially in how much the, the industry has changed. 
changed. I think too, I mean, the, the industry in the 90s is an order of magnitude different than than what it is now. So, I mean, we, we don't have to go through every single thing, obviously, because yeah. I know you're doing tons of press and you're going to get a lot of different stuff thrown at you. But like, I'm kind of curious, what's your take on the industry right now? So... I think the music business, like as far, as far as I've been able to tell over a long time now, mm-hmm. is always been very reactive. Like always been, you know, trying to keep up, but like two years behind anything that's happening. It's it's fine. Mm-hmm. That's just I think that's probably natural. It's probably the only way it could even get get scale is by being mm-hmm. behind. But. I think over time, as people have become more and more focused, I think if people in the business have become more and more focused on like analytics and numbers and trying to to chart the course of the future through, you know, almost like AI methods as opposed to like crazy person with intuition methods, I think in a way, um, the people involved are getting more confused, even if they do the analytics, spot the person who seems to be on some sort of like tangential upward, you know, curve, sign them yeah. really fast, be part of something that blows up and then disappears again. I think the people are more confused in a way. The people doing it are like, they they just throw up their hands and go like, I don't know, how, you know, how it's working. We just lug them in. Everyone has the same numbers. We all just plug the kids into the numbers and try to grab the one that's on the steepest upward path for the coming year. To me, that's like so alien to what I came up with, which was much more a cult of like A&R and record company president personality, you know, much more in the just trusting the usually guys, you know, the wise, man who knows better than everyone else what way the wind is blowing it's just a really different scene but even even then i think people were very reactive to in the business they just reacted to something this thing is happening let's sign everything that sounds a little bit like that (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know how much you dive into uh to like music bios but that's probably my biggest hobby outside of i don't know talking to you about clothes and watches and stuff yeah yeah. and and i was reading um paul simon's bio which you know probably has an asterisk on it because it's kind of his point and stuff but um you know he's talking about how he couldn't really because he he's a songwriter performer yeah. but it was you know started his career writing songs for other people making more money doing that um was mm. smart to try to own all of his publishing which right. is why he's had such a um i don't know a, a lot of resources per se for his career but like mm. he for the longest time no one would give him the time of day or attention mm. because they were like well you're not really cool you're you're like a short dude who's who, who's writing songs about this and doesn't have any soul like i mean it feels like we're kind of still in that but you know it's but when he talks about how a few people yeah well a few of these people gave me chances and then, you know, Simon and Garfunkel yeah. you know, and all this stuff kind of came along. Like it, it does make me wonder about that sort of thing for the, the music industry now. Like when, cause Semisonic wasn't your first thing, correct? Correct. Yeah. And so like, what was it like for you coming on where they were like, oh man, this guy, all right, Dan, you need to dye your hair blonde and cut it shorter and you're going to wear this bowling shirt. <laughs> now go get him. <laughs> we, we, the the touring bands in the 90s all went to the thrift store and bought bowling shirts so we could have some shirts, you know? Hell yeah. And, okay. you know, for like eight bucks or whatever. And the it, it was more like, I don't know. I just, I, my perspective, like just speaking really sort of self-centeredly about my perspective of, of early days of getting signed on labels and trying to get things happening. I literally, I can say very honestly, it was mostly a matter of like, I thought I was in a hustle to get people to pay pay for studio time. I literally was that short-sighted about it. I w- I, and I've never really, really wanted to be, like you said, like, a, a you know, an LA personage or what a, what a personality. I never <laughs> yeah, really LA wanted per- to be. I actually don't have the thirst for fame that is required for the job I was trying to do. But I did have a thirst for 
um, budgets for recording. And I literally thought if I could just keep tricking these people into signing, you know, the purchase order for another budget to make a record, I'm, right. I'm, I'm so happy. It wasn't very forward thinking for me. And it wasn't, there was no like Roth IRA, you know, in that plan. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. literally like, it was just literally like me, like I thought that was a scam I was pulling. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you I, said not having the thirst for fame. I'm, I'm kind of yeah. curious to unpack that a tiny bit. Yeah. All rock stars get the thirst for fame. I mean, do you feel like it was a higher calling sort of thing or? No, no, nothing higher about it. I, I, um, okay. When I was a kid, like when I was 11, I really mm-hmm. knew that I wanted to be a famous songwriter specifically. And it, who were you listening to that gave you that idea? Elton John. Hell yeah. Okay. And Carol King before that, my parents were super into Carol King. So I thought, I think I even out in the Midwest, far from the lore and the knowledge about the business and no internet, you know, nothing that would tell us what's going on. I was aware that there was a thing called a songwriter that was mm-hmm. usually or sometimes separate from the artists or like in the case of the Beatles that my parents really also dug that okay there's an artist who also is a songwriter I was very aware and so when I was a kid I really did dream of being like you know admired for my song and that my songs could be sung by other people and be hits for other people and I and I kind of vaguely thought that I could be a performer but like when I was a kid when I put on shows my brother and I and a couple friends had this funny little factory that made puppets and we made and we put on puppet shows for or neighborhood kids, right? Mm -hmm. And that's me you know, literally early days of basically being behind the scenes, you know, I wasn't standing in front of a band made of made of puppets. I was operating the puppets, you know, so even then I kind of didn't really have the thirst to be idolized as a person, but I did want to be admired as a songwriter. Right. And to you, those are two separate things, right? I think so. Like, well, two things, get into bands, look around, try to find someone to sing your songs and just go, well, I've always sung. I can do these pretty well. I'll, I'll just take on the job and be the singer of this new band. I'll just be the singer. It'll work out fine. But never having a sense that I that I had a voice for the ages or, or was, you know, that kind of star. Secondly, like, I only have one thing I want to do. If you really are thirsty for fame and someone goes, you know what, Dan, this music thing is great, but I want to put you in the movies. If you're thirsty for fame, you're like, yeah, fuck music. I'm in. You know, let's do a movie, <laughs> right? And then they're like, absolutely. The okay. movies, this movie run has gone great. You did great with the movies. Mm-hmm. We're thinking a clothing and fragrance line and you're going to be a, a mogul. And, you know, that, that the person's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, fuck the movies. I'm going to be a mogul. Like that's a kind of desire for for fame and influence and being a personage that is incompatible with like someone going, what I really want to do forever in a day is play the guitar and sing a song. Right. You, you that, that means your thirst is more like the jam. Yeah. That's I mean, me. I think, but also, I mean, the, the songs that you wrote, you know, this isn't John Cale's, you know, understanding of Brahms, uh, you know, or something falling down the stair and you're calling it art. Like, <laughs> They're, Fair enough. They're good songs. Right, like, right. They're in in a way, and I say this with all due respect. They're like textbook, like yeah. Harvard Business, you know, or Harvard study of pop music. Yeah. A B tag hook. Yeah. Like, and they're they're perfect. You know, repetition. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. All of these things that like become earworms. Right. And they, I mean, it's I don't know why you haven't done a master class in songwriting yet. I'm actually still wondering where that is, but you know, we can digest that a day. Yeah. Um. But it's just like this stuff that you wrote. I mean, these were just very very commercial, friendly, beautiful song. Yeah, it's true. Well, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm trying to be careful to be honest here. I, I, 
I really did always want to be admired for my songs. And you to do that, mm-hmm. you need people to hear them. And the things I dug were always, you know, almost always the hit of the person. Well, you said Elton John. I mean, Elton yeah. John, he's got the hooks. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if, if that if that's who I was admiring, I was admiring somebody who, but you know, the, the Elton John songs are crazy. They're asymmetrical. They got weird lyrics. You couldn't really say that the lyrics to most of those, his choruses are really what you would call, they're super quirky. They're super idiosyncratic. They're, they're, they, they, they've got really weird forms just as far as the way the whole song is structured. They're, they're, oh, you know, they're, yeah. they're off the wall. I was probably more influenced by McCartney and Carol King, who are very formally elegant songwriters. Mm-hmm. And I would notice, like I would, for example, I would notice before most people, the, the, the Journey song, Don't Stop Believing. Like I would notice hearing that on the radio, okay, this is a crazy song. Because the thing that everybody sings along to and thinks of as like the whole point of the song is just the end. It's just the tag at right. the end. He just sings that, that phrase, don't stop believing, hold on to that feeling, don't stop believing. That's literally after the entire song has happened. It's 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 the hookiest part of the song, and it only happens the, for the one little stretch, thirty yeah. seconds or so at the end. Yeah. Like I would notice that, like, wow, this is asymmetrical. This isn't like a verse, a, uh, you know, a middle later, a, a verse, a channel, a chorus, a verse, a channel, a chorus, a bridge, a chorus. This is like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, world dominating ending thing that everyone yeah. remembers. That's just weird. Like nobody does that. So I would always notice those things. So I was looking for um, the symmetries and the asymmetries, and I really did want to make things that were probably more like you've got a friend or, you know, even like, even if it's Elvis Costello, whom I admired a lot, is I'm probably more likely to want to make Allison than odd songs like Party Girl or or um, uh, Oliver's Army or something like that, you know. even Actually, Oliver's Army is pretty conventional, but, you know, he had some really weird, asymmetrical, bizarre oh, songs, and then he had these really down-the-middle, like, perfect songs, and I would probably want to make those. Yeah, and, I mean, Costello's career, too, in general, where he's never went away, you know what I mean? Yeah. When, when you yeah. feel about, well, and I think this is the, the good and the scary thing. Like I worked in the music industry for a long time as a failing musician and then also someone on the other side, on the record side. And you look at how things get hot and then things get too hot. And then now it's like, you can't ever like them again. I mean, there's so many things. I mean, it, it, I'm not here to bash anyone, but there, you immediately are laughing because you you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're totally right. I and know. then there's also, I think, like with you and your career, you 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 got hot and you guys never really went away in a good mm. way. And, and I mm. think especially mm. now when you think of bands from the 90s, because something was happening from bands of that era where the nostalgia is so real and rich and people will do anything to tap back into it. And and mm. I think like that's a thing, you know, my, my parents have deep connections with like Peter, Paul, and Mary and, and mm. stuff like that that was really special yeah. to them. But I don't yeah. know if there are things that invoke the same memories that I get when I hear Closing Time or Weezer's of the Blue Album or yeah. these things like that. And I and I keep trying to wonder why that, why am I more nostalgic for these things than other generations? Because I think that's a very common thing amongst millennials. Wow. It's funny you should say that because somebody recently, in a session, somebody asked me that and I couldn't really kind of quantify it. Quantify it. I, the, I think their question was a little more like, um, was there some sort of sweet spot about certain 90s music that made it, yeah, more, that made it generate more of a long lasting connection with the then kids who done yeah. it. And I wonder about that too, because the the thing that happened next after the sort of, you know, ever long by Foo mm-hmm. Fighters, uh, or some of those things that were more, that were almost like singer song, you know, almost like James Taylor with really loud guitars, like really confessional, really about real things. Mm-hmm. The fans are very curious. What, who is this person in ever long? Oh my God, it's the, 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 um, one of the people in Veruca Salt and she's singing on the song. There's all this like lore that has, it's very James Taylor and Carly Simon 
Kevin and you know is is very much like the, the lives are intertwined with the songwriting and stuff like that. And I think this is me not knowing, but I think and then I'll I'll digress one more time after this. I okay. think when it went to like 2002 and so on beyond that, the sort of the heyday of Max Martin, um, you know, Dr. Luke, uh, just perfect, you know, perfect pop songs, just you know, um, provocative enough, just in a crazy hooky, you know, really really engineered for speed, incredible stuff. You you start to lose, I think, a little bit the connection that these Backstreet Boys are really talking about something, <laughs> or that the background vocalist might be one of their, you know, partners. You know what I mean? You, 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 I there's the word a little, you're looking little less for is authenticity. It sounds a like. little bit, yeah, and maybe so it becomes like this yeah. amazing kind of product and 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 infectious and a, and a, and a engineered for great you know epic gigs okay. i was talk i was talking to um my uh, teenage daughter about bts oh, yeah. yesterday because we we listened to um a bunch of k-pop in the house because she's super into k-pop and um i had a, a session and the, the artist on the session was saying i need to ask somebody what the appeal of bts is and i kind of tr- i took a stab at it and then the artist we, then my daughter just was like happened by the the, the sort of space that we were working in and, and uh i asked her what she thought because she's a fan of bts she and she said, well, I said, is it because you have your favorite member? You like the one with the cardigan sweater or you like the one with the long hair or like, you know, yeah, yeah. this one seems shy. Is that the reason? She goes, no, 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 no. It's more like the band is very obviously the product of like hundreds of people's effort. Okay. There's like a huge undertaking generating the band and everything about what you're watching and you're learning these dance moves because some somebody took the trouble of make, doing great choreography. You're kind of become part of something way bigger than you. Yeah, BTS army. Yeah. The army. You become like part of an army you but that's become, like saying you, the street team is the reason why you know so i mean i guess there's truth to that but but like, i mean that's for real i think yeah. i think at this point like people are fan are more a fan of the street team than the, the band member with the cardigan sweater uh, yeah. you know they yeah. whereas with weezer the hilarity of rivers's vulnerable you know ultra nerd lyrics and persona combined with what he obviously thinks is the most ruling guitar tone anyone has ever created you know what i mean like he like it really does feel like it's about him reaching for the stars you know in in a in the quirkiest way you definitely feel connected i think to you know i, I don't think that's gone away like i think people feel like phoebe bridgers's songs are totally her life well, unfolding. phoebe bridgers i think is is the diamond in the rough and i mean the example you you chose was dead on but i think that's one of a million so much stuff now you know the songwriting credits is like reading the Iliad I mean they're, they're, it's not it's not just a person it's you know it's like Max Martin and 10,000 people and yeah. you know I don't know what the Writers Guild thing is going to look like of like well you had credit for that song I mean the publishing mm. thing's got to be absurd you know I mean I remember just for listeners who don't understand the way that like music publishing works is it has to equal 200% you have words and music and so you you know and then you have the master and the song right so you have the masters the mm. recording you can correct yeah. me on this then you have the song that's like the the work of art. And those things have to, when they're divvying up who gets what, it has to equal 200% because one Mm. side is the words and that can be divvied up all the way. And the other side is the music and that gets divvied up all the way. So when you have a song like Katy Perry's Roar, right? There's people that are taking credits for the words. There's people that are taking credits for the music. There's some people that get credits for everything. There's some people that get credits for nothing. I mean, it's it's like it's like a Hollywood movie. People come in and they'll do punch-ups on a song. Like, I, you know, so that, that this or is- not. Yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, and they're, they're not going to get credit for it. It's like, oh, we're going to send this guy a Rolex and he came in, he did a guitar riff because it'll cost him more. So like, mm-hmm. that is where it is versus words and music by- Dan Wilson. <laughs> like. Well, okay. So, it, so I'm not sure I 
I, I think things have moved into a whole new space as far as like 100% is on the words and 100% is on the music. People think of it in very different ways now. A song might start out as a sample, like somebody made some beautiful thing with a keyboard and a and a, and a mm-hmm, synth bass. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, it's got a tempo to it, but it doesn't really have any drums in it. And then they, they end up, that gets chosen from a pile of samples by a producer who puts the drum beat on it and might they might try several different drum beats or have a couple different members of that producer's team put the drums on it and one of those wins that shootout then that sample that full sample with all the all those components gets picked by another producer whose main job is that they're in the studio every day this month with a, a famous artist and they are the conduit for that completed sample with drums and synths and, and basses and whatever to get to the studio while the artist is in front of the microphone that person that last person i'm describing the producer mm-hmm. at that that point is saying, well, I'm 50%. Then they did, they don't oh, even, die. Okay. they didn't play anything. They just, they're just the conduit. They're just the uh, the hookup. So, so everybody at the beginning of the song, their portion of the song gets smaller and smaller and smaller because then at that point, the artist is like writing maybe the words to it or part of the words to it, or, you know, part of a team writing the words to it. And, or they're just, the, they're just them. So they get 25% of the song. All that people at the beginning of the process, their, their pieces dwindling and dwindling. It's all much more like a, that's one thing. It's like the, the songwriting credit is is now more like a, a, a you know a data trail back to the original person who made the first like guitar riff or whatever it was or like keyboard mm-hmm. piece it's like a trail of percentages that go back down to that first person the other thing is and, and that's a little bit like just hard ass business sure. stuff. but the other thing is like back if you had a motown song and the reason it's great is because um james jamerson's bass line is the greatest thing you ever heard in your life well, James Jamerson isn't going to get any songwriting credit on that song then, back yeah. then. It might be that the whole thing hinges on this incredible bass line. But the way that the agreed approach was that that session player, even if they made or broke the song, doesn't get songwriting credit. Now, though, those people do get some songwriting credit. Okay. In, a way it's more, it's an, in a way, it's more fair. And so part of the thing that people complain about, like if you say, well, like there's 40 people on this you know, list of, of yeah. authors, you know? Well, part of that is like the graft of the business and the person who, you know, add a word take a third it's big you know it's like it somebody added a word and they took a third and it's you know usually the person who hands it to the artist doesn't even need to add a word they just take a third that's maybe the graft of it but there is an element that's actually more fair because the people who are just like whose vibes are creating greatness are actually getting to be part of that list of writers so it looks long and everyone's all bummed about it but in some <laughs> ways it reflects more people that more people are contributing that, as they okay. used to now that that's a great point i wholeheartedly yeah. agree in terms of contribution stuff and ensuring credit i mean it makes you wonder you know why is the net worth of everyone in the wrecking crew you know or, or the ones that were still around right and the, i mean the, the wrecking crew they they did most of the songs of everyone at that time right i mean they, they yeah. all did well yeah. but like you know if, yeah. if you're writing if you're writing hooks with brian wilson and I, I think there's probably a pay disparage so it's good it sounds yeah. like that there's a little bit more of a, a correction there do you think that you know because to jump back to the question we were talking about about like authenticity and stuff of that era yeah. do you think that there's a part of that that maybe gets lost when it becomes art by committee oh yeah, yeah. i totally do i totally do i think it gets i think a lot of things get lost I think I think um, you know. On the other hand, I like some movies a lot, and that's a vast undertaking with tons of compromises and mm-hmm. behind the scenes, you know, bullshit reasons for things to happen, mm-hmm. not happen. Mm-hmm. So. I- but I guess maybe I'm being sentimental, but I think the thing, I would rather hear Lucy Dacus or or Phoebe Bridgers or somebody else who seems like they're just like waking up and rubbing their eyes and like writing a song. I, there's something about that that like, because that's more of a magic trick. That's like Ricky Jay with a deck of cards. That's like somebody who has, all they have is like the one instrument and their own thoughts. And now you're 
crying your eyes yeah. out. That to me is like, that's like watching someone do a magic trick on the table in front of you and, and blowing your mind. And to me, that's a little bit different than the BTS thing or like a big Hollywood movie where you just know that there's like that, like the, the credits at the end of a superhero movie. It's like a thousand people in India, you know, and then yeah. there's a thousand people in Korea. And then there's, you know, there's like vast numbers of people making this great thing happen. That's amazing, but it's actually kind of less amazing than like somebody who takes out a deck of cards and, and fools you again and again, right in front of your eyes you know and that's what i think good songwriting is like it's like a it's like this crazy party trick oh I, with nothing but my bare hands <laughs> and my own thoughts i will make you all cry yeah because you know? i i think that's the thing when, when people always talk about like when artists get successful like they get you know they they would they become less interested to the people but in some cases it's only because what you connected with with the artist was like their angst and their loneliness you know mm. like and mm. i don't wish this upon anyone and i won't use any examples but when someone's like oh yeah i heard that album now that person's married and rich so so like all their music is just happy. It's like, well, don't. <laughs> I know, I know that is a, that's a predicament. I think, well, yeah, I mean, I want everyone to be happy. It's like, I don't want to just listen to this person because it sounds like their life is shitty. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I've, I've often wondered about that because there are some great happy songs. They actually, it's almost like that's the, that's almost like the holy grail of good songwriting. Like how to make, you know, like how to make Happy by Pharrell Williams, how to make Walking in Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves, how to make, you know, certain things are just chemistry? like full of joy. Chemistry is full of joy. Yeah. That that song is like, I, I re-listened to that the other day and I was like, oh my God, it's just, it's flawed. I was literally trying, I, I felt a happiness when I was writing the song and I felt like the piano part just demanded it to be very joyful. It was, you know, it was it was unwelcome culturally compared to other songs because that was the time of Limp Biscuit and lots of <laughs> misogynistic, you know. If only you would have written a but, song called Nookie, Dan, we'd be in you'd be in such a better place. You'd well, you some... know, we can't really feel sorry for me that I didn't write Nookie. I, I this morning I was listening. This is pretty dorky, but this morning I was listening to Complicated by Avril Lavigne because I because I overheard it and I realized that the that the um the the vocal harmonies in that thing are like a, a work of art. They're so dissonant. Mm. They're like, they're crazy dissonant. And, but they seem really consonant and, and it's all in tune. It's beautifully sung, but it's, it's like jazz or something. It's so dense. And I didn't realize it whenever I heard the song back when it was happening, you know, I just thought it was an infectious, great thing. And I remember at that time when Complicated was, and Avril Lavigne was, you know, really happening. I was like, oh, I want to try to write some songs like that. And I tried, but they were bad. I, I was only able to write bad Avril Lavigne type song. Wait, who said they were bad? One. You said they were bad? or I, I thought they were bad. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was just, it was, I was like, Have no. you written songs in the past that you thought were bad, but like people were like, actually this, this is it. I'm just uh, curious how you judge your own judgment. I'm usually pretty easy on myself, actually. Okay. And I'm, I'm usually right, but I allow, I, I give too many of my songs a pass. I'm like, no, no, that's a really good one when actually it wasn't that good. So I'm actually, I'm nicer to myself than I need. Oh, that's good. But in, in, in the case of me trying to be someone who could maybe write songs that could be Avril Lavigne songs back in the day, I it was a very interesting experience for me. It was like, oh, I kind of suck at this. This is not me. Was that because good. you it, it, wrote it, the song for yourself? I was just trying to write songs, you know, with a couple artists, maybe for them. Maybe it okay. would be something that I would do. It was just like a, it was just part of my creative, you know. I mean, because obviously you, you've, you fixed it somehow, right? I mean, you're writing songs for Adele. You're writing songs for other people, which. Oh, 
No, but I don't write Avril Lavigne songs well, for that. Correct. And I think that's, yeah. that's is yeah. that what made the shift? It's Because I am curious, Maybe. like for people that write music and play music, do you switch your brain when you're going to be like, okay, well, I need to write a song for Sarah McLaughlin, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's pull one out. Mm-hmm. But like, sure. do you, you know, how would you, how did you approach writing stuff for Adele versus Semisonic? Uh, you know, it's funny because I, I think my path in life really affected that because when I, I really thought early on I was going to be co-writing with people, but it didn't happen. It really didn't start, except for my brother and me writing songs for Trip Shakespeare, my first band. And then Jacob Slichter, the drummer in Semisonic, and I wrote a couple of our really good songs together. So I was always open to writing with somebody, but I thought I was going to be writing with other people for them to sing. And, and it was very slow to come. Um, it was really only in my late 30s that I got a couple of opportunities to li- co-write with brilliant people for their record and really try to make something happen. And by that time, I had already had a lot of my dreams come true. So Uh-oh. I wasn't really going to sublimate my desire for to dominate the world or have hits or whatever into my... What were the dreams? Well, I mean, like, I'm going to write hit songs. And uh, I'm going to be thought of as a essentially like a composer, a songwriter. People are going to dig my song. Mm. I really did have that from, from a very early age. So by my late 30s, I already had, you know, Closing Time and Secret Smile and Singing in My Sleep and a lot of things that had been on the radio Jeez. a lot. And, you know, just a lot of things that yeah. happened. And heavy, I, I, even the song. band before. Yeah. yeah. And the, the band before... Before that was like a cult. We had a crazy cult of people in the in the Midwest who would follow us in their vans around the you know the the circuit and like come to all the gigs. Trip Shakespeare was loved in a whole other way. I by the time I was writing with people for them, it's not like I'd had it all. It's not like I was like uh, retired or something like that. I just didn't really. I wasn't proving myself through them in the same way that I might have. You know, I was I was trying to get I was trying to get them to write the very best song for themselves that that we could uh-huh. do. Partly because it was fun to think of like trying to have them have the experience that I had had. You know, it was fun to think, okay, how can we hack this situation so that I can be helpful enough that we might generate a piece of music that could do for you what, you know, those songs did for me. So I I was, I think, and I I don't, you probably have to talk to people that collaborated with me, but I think I was very much in service compared to a lot of songwriters. I think the greatest ones are usually actually like very much in service. I I love your voice. I think you're amazing. I, I, I can't believe enough people haven't heard you and you have something to say and I want to just like as a fan I just want to hear what you have to say and maybe I can I can help you just clarify that on the way out so that it has some sort of like hooks in it so that people will listen a second time you know that I think a lot of the really good you know producer songwriter collaborator types do have a large component of like loving helpfulness no I mean you're you're absolutely right because uh, I, I think songwriting is is an art that's just so personal from so many yeah. people, especially because right. in most cases, you can go to art school, right? And I think art school people understand pretty easy. There is music school, obviously, but yeah. like it's yeah. not, it's still such a tough nut to crack of the, the intuition of songs, even when people will talk about like perfect harmonies and perfect thirds and fifths and stuff like that. I mean, because for me, I mean, like great songwriting always taps into this like emotional exploration. I mean, I wouldn't say angst or trauma, but like, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a thing. And to be able to, to help someone navigate. So you're kind of like, I imagine you're also a pretty good therapist to your friends. I'm just assuming. Yeah, I like, guess. Well, I mean, just based based on- I'm a good listener. Yeah, I'm a there good you listener. go. Good listener. I can reflect back to you what you said yeah, to me. Yeah, and I, because I, yeah. I think like that's that's the the art of that stuff versus, you know, I mean, I have a few friends who've done things around Max Martin or and they've just talked about how the experience is so bizarre. But also, yeah. I think that's the thing when, when, when people- 
are making music and then you know you have this like larger especially with the way that music is evolved now into being like short bits i mean there, there's people that i know that were like oh yeah i know that closing time song from the office and you're like yeah. it was like 15 years old by then. <laughs> that's incredible it's like these little memories that people are kind of connecting to so yeah I, 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 you know thinking about I mean it's a very interesting question this, this thing about authenticity and it also has to do with like what what do you see your mission as or what what do you owe the world you know and thinking about like Paul Simon for example you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier like uh, he had a song called Rewrite on maybe it's on like So Beautiful or So What yeah. record that came out in the past 10 years anyway not too long ago in sort of you know glacial time yeah. not pop music time but that's song rewrite is so incredible and like it's almost like it gives you a sense into like what is he up to because if he's trying to prove himself well then fuck it he did it long time ago and if he's trying to you know own more uh townhouses and condos or whatever you know fuck it he did it it's done yeah. there's none of the things you could be doing by proving yourself uh are left on paul simon's list and i'm projecting so i i who knows but but he's writing rewrite and you know in the last like five or ten years he wrote that to, to me what i think of as like one of his best songs i just love that song uh a couple songs on those last the, the record that so beautiful or so what and the one right after that that i think are like top paul simon stuff so why is he doing that because he just He's a hunter and he likes to be on the hunt, you know? That's why he's doing it. He feels he feels like he's on the trail of something amazing yeah. and he yeah. wants to be on that trail. Like and in his case, what is that trail? It's like a melody and lyrics that are going to be the magic trick that he could sing to friends over the table and they fucking blow, you know, their minds are blown. But for someone else, like if it's Coldplay, they've done all that too. They don't have anything more to prove. They don't need to, to write clocks or the scientist again? Why? Right. And who would? Why? You don't need to. So at a certain point, like, okay, now they're like just going to try to like, okay, what's the experiment of becoming even huger and having songs like, you know, Katy Perry's or, you know, uh, you know, the kind of pop, sort of almost like arithmetic pop, pop classic. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the picture of a band like Coldplay, who's done all the things that we think of as like super authentic, still on the hunt. They want to be on the hunt. They want to, you know, at least to some degree, like, well, now we're on the hunt for to write some things that are going to be guaranteed huge like ultra pop smashes i have to sort of like remember that just because somebody gave me like 20 amazing authentic personal great songs that moved me and still stuck in my head you know it doesn't mean they owed me 20 more yeah. they don't owe me shit you know i already i took those songs and probably got them for free now you know so <laughs> that person doesn't owe me anything and so i i try not to quibble with as a fan like with artist decisions i try to be like well this is their trip this is what they're doing right now i wish they would just do more of that one thing I really liked yeah. but the hell with that like wh wh what is my standing you know to, to ask would you that? say you're on the hunt oh totally that's, I mean this because yeah, you know obviously we're, we're, you have this new EP that just came out and you yeah. know there's there's songs new songs original songs I mean you cover uh, Mike from Perfume Genius he's oh you know been on the show and stuff before beautiful so you know yeah. but, but like the the hunt mentality I think that's a really interesting way to look at yeah well the EP for me has been it was an interesting experience making it because it's a much more because of, during the pandemic I I had already been um, bringing my guitar with a pedal board to sessions for like three years before the pandemic and this is before everyone was like oh we need a guitar in our song i would just always bring it and i'd make crazy sounds with these sort of it's like a golden age of weird ass guitar pedals that are tiny computers that make things sound insanely great or or terrible you know but just like <laughs> it's a really great time for that so your pedal board is like this strange um 
fantasy pedal board that has nothing to do with what it might have been um, you know in the when when the distortion pedal was the only thing a person would have a rat was all they had hooked up to their guitar right. so i would bring the i would bring my rig and i would just make like experimental sounds during sessions like just be really like free and do unhinged hooky sounding things with the guitar and then when the pandemic hit i became like obsessed with a certain small set of these experimental tools and then I started putting my voice through those things too. And I started to just like treat all the, the whole recording thing a lot more like a, a crazy mad scientist experiment and a lot less like my old, like the way that I would have done with Rick Rubin uh, when we were making Free Life together. Like that was very much like a documentarian. It's people in a room. There's yeah. a sense of presence in the drum set that makes you feel like you're in a kind of a nice, loud, big studio. You know, there's all that. There's the closeness of the vocal. Like everything's kind of just barely distorting, but only because that makes it sound more real. Mm -hmm. So with, with this new EP, it was much more like I let go of those documentarian vibes and just tried to be on the hunt for the cool lists like audio that I could make at that time. Whatever. Did, did you be. do like, because I know that some people, I, I've made the argument probably incorrectly that some of the mm -hmm. best music ever was done in the 70s because the access and the amount of technology was just enough and limited at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like, like mm -hmm. Dark Side of the Moon was made on 16 tracks, which is yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. Did you do any sort of experiments? Because I know you have your, um, your, the, the kind of oblique strategies card deck that you, yes, um, yes. were you kind of like doing any sort of other restraints or things like that that kind of would maybe force? force you to make different decisions or when you were trying to make this? Yeah. A uh, couple things happened. I I, uh, I moved from my house in Sherman Oaks, where I had like a proper studio, like a mm -hmm. like a built out studio that was constructed in the you know main room, control room, drum right. ISO, you know machine room. It was all very much like I just stole a whole bunch of rooms from the house that the family might have used, but they couldn't now because I took them and I turned it into. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Dad. Oh, like, yeah, sorry, kids. <laughs> sorry. Um. So so I. I made that part of the house into like the components that were familiar to me as a studio. But then during the pandemic, we moved to a new place that didn't really have a studio in it that had like a, a you know, like a writing space, mm -hmm. but not really a studio. And, and, uh, I started doing a lot more of my stuff with like an OP1 keyboard, these tiny, tiny um, electronic keyboards that are incredible, and my laptop. And I would just go from place to place and like, or sit out on a table in the sun and make the record in the in the in the computer. It's not like that's a new idea. I'm very late to that party. But Dancing on the Moon is like basically my laptop record, and it's it was a very interesting kind of constraint to embrace and say, well, I'm not going to, not going to be dependent on a space. I don't have a space. So I'm going to be dependent on the internal stuff and the, and the electronics and the gig. And like, like I could take sound out of the laptop, put it through the guitar pedals, mm -hmm. bring it back in, messed yeah. up and do, and you know, repeat, like that was my process. How do you know when a song is done? Cause I feel mm -hmm. like we're at this age where people are constantly, you have the ability to just update your song anytime yeah. you want. It's even happening with TV and film. Like friends of mine were like, oh yeah, the, the, the movie you saw. Yeah. Well, if you saw it on the third week we had we sent a new thing to netflix we took out that scene and you're like what? wow i didn't know that oh my god well, that you know and there's famous for a lot of other artists people like you know kanye what he like uploaded his album six or seven different times life of yeah. life of pablo was the first one that i remember there being like a whole bunch of versions that were all released. yeah so like for you when you're writing music like is a song ever done or do you do you what do you when do you know it is well i have i guess like speaking of my my deck of musical advice cards one of them is um uh something like um make it simpler and simpler until you can't leave anything out anything else out you know like remove mm -hmm. things until you can't leave anything else out and i think uh i think i got this from rick rubin 
where when you feel like you're on the home stretch, then you start muting things. Mm. Then you get into like the reducer part of the process as opposed to the the producer part of the process. And in a way, like you you try to push yourself to the point where you just removed the the last thing that you can take out that you're not too sad about. You know, and it's like a very but it's hard to do. And then mm-hmm. to me, the 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 last step is just giving it to the public. And I just don't feel I never feel like I could make an improvement that would be that much better personally as an experience than just writing a new song. So I, I I always feel like I'd rather write a new song than like, if I can get to the point where I'm like, I did the last tweak, it's done. The mix is done. The mix is good. I'll never sort out that one question about the bass, but it's fine. Then I can actually turn my attention to like writing a new song, which is more fun. And it's it's all blue sky because it's new, you know? So right. I just give up on them in a way. <laughs> I just go, well, that's the best. That's the best I can do. It's done. Well, I, mean, I think that's a great mentality. I mean, I think it was Paul McCartney at one point was he, you know, in one of his gajillion interviews, someone was asking about a song and he was like, like you know, what, if you could go back and do this. And he was like, I just write another song. <laughs> yeah. just, I'll just write another one. That's so <laughs> Just like, wow, okay. Must be nice. So great. <laughs> and just to have that confidence in your own. I mean, that's something I've really had to cultivate in my mind. Like it's like I watched enough people who, you know, they'd have like, I mean, I have people ask me like, what do you do about a song that you've been working on for a year and you just can't finish? Uh-oh. And I'd be like, I really, what I want to say is like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. That's, first of all, that song is probably never going to be done. It's because it's got some, it's got some little like tangle in the, in the, in the weave that can't be yeah. untangled. You know, you're, you're, you're actually, it's actually a paradoxical song that's never going to be finished. So just throw it away and start a new one. But part of me is also like, I think I'm, I think I made almost like a pact with myself. Like when, when Semisonic started, okay. John and I from Semisonic had been in Trip Shakespeare together and Trip Shakespeare, we we practiced, we jammed, a lot of our shows were jams. And we were sort of be- before the jam band curve, which was a mistake, but you can't help what your timing is. So all the jam bands really loved our board tapes, you know, <laughs> but the people didn't like us yet. So we were just a bit ahead of that whole thing. But we practiced, you know, seven hours a day with a lunch break and a third of that was jamming. But it was almost like it's our job to get together and jam every day of the weekday. And right. then when we worked on songs, we would we would try this version of that song and that version of that song and version and version and version and rewrite and change and try. And when I started Semisonic with John Munson and Jacob Slichter, I, I kind of made a manifesto of, of the band rules. The the rules were, and I'm going to get them wrong, but this is pretty close. The rules were life is more important than music. That was the first rule. Okay. Um, if we're having a bad time, we're going to leave the rehearsal space and go to the Loring Bar and have a drink. Um, if a song is sounding bad after a couple hours of trying, I will throw it away and write a new song for tomorrow. Oof. Those those were the rules. Like, and they were really good rules. They were very. Um, it 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 hacked my brain because then I was committed to this idea that if a song wasn't working, it's because it sucks. So I would write another one that would yeah, work. Yeah. Sometimes a song just has the the idea doesn't fit its own tempo or it's it's got a stumble in it somehow or there's a little too long of a gap between the lines and you just, it's never going to be good. It's always going to be awkward. So that was a good thing for me that I stumbled on. Like I, I, I just happened upon this idea that if it doesn't sound good with the guys, yeah. then it's not good for us and I got to write a new song for tomorrow's rehearsal. That's a very egoless decision. Interesting. Yeah. I think I, it was very confident because I was basically saying, oh, I'll come up with something better. Tomorrow. Well, I mean, but I, I think, know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, because what, what was your first rule again? It was life that, is more important than music. Yeah. Okay. There's a, <laughs> a lot of bands would still be around if they would have abided by that. Just, just throwing that out there. Yeah, we're all still friends. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. I mean, what if the Eagles is Oh, that? shit. Joke's on them. They would have still been the Eagles anyway. anyway. That's the problem. <laughs> I have an <laughs> Eagles thing that relates to uh, Paul Simon. Okay, Just please. a little digression because we talked about Paul Simon. No, hey, dive and in. this is part of my sort of kind of undying admiration. I love the Eagles. Uh, I think they're amazing. And but oh. and I love the way that they're like the, the angelic choir of goodness on Short People by Randy Newman, which is such an evil song. And so the fact that they were cast as like... <laughs> The beautiful angel choir was like so dark. I love that. But yeah. I read in this book about Paul Simon. Uh, I think it was about Paul Simon, Carol King, James Taylor, Jeez. and one other set of artists. And it traced their path in 1971, maybe. Okay, but it's one of the Canyon kind stuff. of kind of like the music business is blowing up, and Bridge Over Troubled Waters changes the Paul Simon like the the Simon and Garfunkel like identity. And but the thing I liked about best about it was there's one anecdote in the book that describes how the two leaders of the Eagles, Glenn Fry and Don Henley, yep. arranged for a meeting with Paul Simon because Paul Simon had chatted with them at some point randomly and told them, well, if they ever want to ask questions about how the music business works, you know, and you're in New York, just let me know. And so Henley and Fry from the Eagles took him up on the offer and they had lunch and they just picked his brain for the whole lunch about like how, how royalties work and what labels are doing and how, you know, how the label might rip you off and like, what's the, you know, what's the etiquette of this and that and what is my, what is our manager supposed to be doing and when can we be disgruntled about this or that? Like, it's like, they just, asked him a zillion questions wow. about the business over lunch and he first of all I love that he agreed to do it and also I love that he was the guy that a smart person would ask about that stuff which kind of tells you well that, I mean he yeah his career was selling music and writing it for others before it was himself good point yeah. right yeah, that's why. I mean, to be honest, that's that's why he made so much money on his stuff, even at the success they had, because he owned all the. And publishing. he knew the tricks that were coming up down the pike for him. You know, like the 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 he knew but, the bad deals that would be offered him. Yeah, I mean, but the the, the heartbreaking thing though is is from every book and everything that the, the, he's still unhappy. Aww. You know, I mean, it was still still pissed off over people thinking that Art Garfunkel did you know Bridge Over Troubled Water, <laughs> pissed off that the spotlight was on him. Aww. You know, pissed off about paternal relationships and stuff. Well, you right? Can't. You know what? Whenever people ask me this question, so I'm I'm not going to be too glib about this, but whenever people say, so, you know, they like, it must be so, you know, a lot of your songs are so, um, sort of so cathartic and so soothing. And, you know, it must be like <laughs> amazing therapy and sort of catharsis for you to write a song is, is what, what's that like? And I'm like, no, it's not <laughs> totally not. It's not helpful yeah. at all. It's a whole other thing. It's good for you. You can, you got some catharsis out of my song, but I, I didn't when I was writing it. I don't, it's, I, it's, to me, it's not like, oh, writing a good song is like therapy. I do not understand that at all. Therapy is like therapy. Therapy is really good. <laughs> <laughs> but writing a song is not therapy. And so like if yeah. someone's miserable and they write a hundred amazing, timeless hit songs, you can't just go, well, that must have been so therapeutic for you. <laughs> you, must, you must be happy now. I don't think so. No. Hell no. I, mean, I think, yeah, that's, that's the tough part too. I mean, people make jokes about artists too when their music does change, where it's like, well, you only viewed me because you thought I was really shitty and like life was bad right. and, and now you got help and you don't want to, you know, be my buddy anymore. Right. Like, I, cause I think that's, that's a whole other can of worms, but yeah. I think like there's a lot of um, projection that listeners put on music, on, excuse me, on musicians now. Um, and just that like, so, hey, solve all my problems. Well, I mean, <laughs> like, but, uh, but I get that. And I think actually listening to music can be cathartic and even hearing a song and you which is about a subject that you thought you were the only person in the world suffering from okay. it's very very it's very communal 
you feel like, oh, oh, wow, I'm not, you know, I'm not alone in this. Like someone wrote a song about the, it's seemingly about my exact problem right now. That to me is like one of the really wonderful things about music. But that's not the effect that the music has on the person who's making the music. That's a whole, it's a whole other thing. And making music might be, might be communal because you're doing it with a group of brilliant friends or colleagues, you know. Making mm-hmm. music might be therapeutic because you get to have laughs with them and during a break in the session tell them why you're so bummed out. You know, it can be therapeutic and it can be communal, but it's but not but the music is that you're making is irrelevant to your emotional need. That's my opinion. No, that's well, this we, is your show, so it's a great opinion. We, we, can't, <laughs> we can't expect somebody to be happy just because they wrote a bunch of amazing songs. That's unfair. Yeah. Well I've the, there you go. That that'll be tad tattooed across everyone's head that wasn't I know I think you're exactly right but it, it just it goes in hand with with any artist you know I mean it's like when people met Dylan and stuff and he just didn't know what to say so he just you know responded in anger towards people that, you know they're like losing their mind over new morning or something and, and I digress um a couple random questions cool. for you before yeah. um based on all this this is all music related stuff yeah. uh so YouTube is still the number one music player mm. uh, I don't know if you're I aware but it's where everyone goes so when you're on YouTube what are the things that you watch or I'll put it this way what's the last thing you watched on YouTube the last thing I watched on YouTube is um, a piece of music by Andrew Wong and Rob Scallon it's called a hundred riffs in one day and okay. it's, they had cameras rolling for an entire day in this in the studio and they and they just they they just wrote as many great metal riffs as they could in as short a time as they could and all, all the riffs are like eight bars long they're very short and then they're like they're scratching their heads and they're like oh what's the next one let's uh Let's see, let's do one called um, Bike Pile. Okay. And then they'd make a super scary sounding metal riff and they do it a hundred times. That was That's the latest YouTube thing I watched. Oh, dang. Um, what is a album that you think is severely underrated? Oh, uh, maybe Be Here Now by um, Ray LaMontagne. Whoa. I was p- figuring you'd pick something from 70s or 80s or something. No, it's the first thing that comes to my mind. I think it's just unbelievable. Well, why why Ray LaMontagne? Well, just this is this record is like the it's it's like um it it's so emotionally raw and so and very beautiful and very and it's like uh, It's a little like Astro Weeks, right? Like there's it's Yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it sounds like Van Morrison, kind of yeah. updated Van Morrison. Very just just a, a great record. Anyway, that's my answer. What is an album that you think is overrated? Oh, wow. Uh, the White Album by the Beatles? <gasps> okay. Uh-oh. Go Uh-oh. on. Now I'm in trouble. Go on. Well, it's just, I just think it's overrated. Why is it overrated? It's, it's just a, it's just a mishmash to me. Oh, damn it's it. just a mess. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I think healthy criticism is extremely important, especially now when everyone, the amount of times I've done pods with other people and you'll ask someone for their opinion on, they're like, well, I don't really want to say it. And you're uh-huh. just like, no one's going to cancel you because you don't like the Beatles. Or, or, or <laughs> I love more the specific, because you didn't like the I white just don't album. like the white album. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some weird songs on there. Uh, yeah. yeah, like my my daughter. It's the album my daughter likes because I realized, oh, all these songs are kid things like Bungalow Bill and yeah. you know Obladi and yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're yeah. there's some but things on that record. I could I, I I so I'm not here to be I'm not here to stand or fall on my opinion about the white album. And there's some there's some things on that record that are just amazing. I mean, Good yeah, Night, it's a Beatles album. That's Good Night okay. is incredible, and yeah, a bunch of those songs are really really great. But I'm I'm not so into the yellow submarine side of the band and so there's a bunch of you know on the other hand martha my dear is one of my favorite songs ever you know i do like the i do like the playful side of the beatles but i don't need mccartney to be scary that is (laughs) i don't need that so i'll just go where is he scary 
Helter, Helter Skelter doesn't scare me. Oh, it's yeah. just him being like, it's him being heavy and when it's sort of almost inappropriate for him to be heavy. He's so amazing. Why Why does he need to show us that he can be heavy? That makes no sense. Yeah. Um. What is your take on all the, on like now that bands need like TikTok strategies or bands that are like yeah. blowing up over TikTok? Yeah. I mean, TikTok is funny because um, it's like a, it's, well, it's, we talked at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about reactiveness, like the yeah. business being reactive, like, and everybody, everybody was over here and then TikTok was over there on the other side of the pool. And then everyone swam instantly over to the other side of the pool where TikTok was, you know, it's like that. I think personally, I've just, I haven't maybe gotten onto TikTok for long enough for it to know my inner soul and, and know exactly what to show me. So okay. m- most of what I see on TikTok is like, oh, this Jesus, this garbage, like, I don't want to see this. You know, this is just, yeah, yeah. I just, I don't find it fun personally, but I might be generationally or temperamentally unsuited to it. Well, and you I, were on Vine super early. Right? I liked Vine. The Vine was a great way for me to try to say helpful, useful things to musicians in the shortest possible time. That made perfect sense to me. I was like, well, there's your TikTok. Yeah, TikTok is like that, but mm, it, I don't know if that's who we ought to be um, consuming our great songs from is whoever randomly got, went viral on TikTok. I'm not sure if that's really the, the test for no, I that is where like I still I don't mind people telling me stuff to listen to but I do want it to be in a different environment it's like I just learned how to patch drywall and now you're trying to tell me like, to listen to this song or it's like hey here's three easy hacks to write the best version of chorus in here it's like uh, you know and you're like what huh well I it's, I don't know, we're not too far from like some sort of like breakthrough in artificial intelligence generating oh. pretty damn good songs. And I, I do think, like when I would go on, t- when I would go on tour um, in my early days of going on tour, I used to see these bands and like, I'd be like, okay, that all sucked, except they had one amazing song and that amazing song was so good. And it would happen right. over and over and over again. Like that, there's something about like, you get Who the are people you touring together. with? <laughs> what? I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually like i'm more sort of dissing the the opener than okay. the, than, than the co-headliner i'm not I'm, I'm basically saying like you know or i'd go to gigs and i'd watch like somebody play and it'd be like yeah. this is bad 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 oh my god they have this one amazing song that was amazing but the rest of the experience of seeing them was was bad okay but they did somehow strike gold some amazing moment happened in their rehearsal space one day and they just nailed it and a lot of these bands would have like that one great 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 song you know and then jacob from semisonic and I used to have this sort of like fantasy that someday we would just like collect up all those great songs and make like the giant, you know, compilation tape from like all of these bands, one good song amidst the rest of their terrible song. And, but we, then we'd have an amazing compilation tape of like, you know, just only great, the, the moments of inspiration from each artist that we had seen in our, you know, in our many, many years of like touring. And that's what TikTok is. Oh shit. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, <laughs> so don't it's, go it's see that. them. Don't and go see like... them and expect to see more than 15 minutes of something good happening. But that 15 minutes might be amazing. It'll be great. Yeah, it's like that and a bunch of like laundry hacks. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just things that don't go together. I um, love it. Although I do love it. Did you learn how to do drywall from TikTok? Because I love no, it's it's there's stuff that I've seen that I'm like, oh, that's great. But yeah. like, I'm not the kind of person that's going to like, you know, hold a little six inch phone up while I'm like, you know, spackling something or things like that. I yeah. think the stuff there is sound. It makes sense. And there's, yeah. there are, there's a ton of, a friend of mine is a reporter and she's like, there, the amount of like fake stuff on there is overwhelming. Oh my God. But like for younger kids, TikTok is their search engine. And for me, YouTube huh. is my search engine. 
content right. for how to, right. you know. Um, so it's, I think like that's, that's the thing where it's like, okay, more and more people are going to do that. And it does make me wonder, you know, even in songwriting, stuff like that, well, fine. You just, you just need 30 seconds of great, of greatness. It's not, it's not even one, one song on an LP of greatness or <laughs> one part LP of, a song of greatness. Once they flesh it out and make it into a whole song, it might not be maybe even that good. It's probably better yeah. as a. It's but, just a hook. It's yeah, just yeah, the yeah, very end of the Avril Lavigne thing. It was just that it. one moment. Yeah. Yeah. The last <laughs> little bit of Don't Stop Believing. Oh yeah. Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. He should have just Jeez. done that. Just skip the rest. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that with Journey. That would <laughs> Um, Dan, it has been a joy and a pleasure to chat with you. I hope you enjoyed this. Somewhat. So fun. So fun. I really did like it. It was amazing. Cool. Well, it was, it was great to meet you, but I'll, I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Do all the deals. Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. And if you want to talk to us, you can send us an email at info at blamopod.com and we'll get back to you. If you want to hang out with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where we have tons and tons of exclusive episodes in our amazing Slack community. All right, everybody. That's it from me. See you soon. <laughs>